another week, another episode of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And for episode 29, we welcome one of the most visionary coaches and coach mentors in the game of rugby. Joining me, Brendan and Chris to discuss some coaching philosophies he's been working on is none other than former England coach, Brian Ashton. Right, I re-welcome Brendan and Chris. Great to have you with me. And we are with coaching legend, player legend, and now coach mentor legend, Brian Ashton. How are you, Brian? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. So, talk to me. What are you up to nowadays? I'm sat in my flat in Lancaster at the moment and breathing air from God's own county. Yeah, I've actually quite an interesting life. I've been working for as a sort of coach educator. Conciliaire is the, the word I prefer, not because it's got mafia undertones, but because it's <laughs> um, it seems to en- encapsulate probably best what I do, sort of an advisor. Uh, looking in from the shadows and commenting when uh, when I feel it's appropriate. So I work as a conciliary for Premier League football, uh, which co- also covers Football League. I'll be doing that now. I think this is my 10th year doing this, doing that. Uh, that's been really interesting, going into some of the top football clubs in the country. In the north of England, I'd, I've refused to work further south than Manchester for a variety of reasons. I also have done 13 years now with the International Rugby Academy of New Zealand, which is run by Murray Mexted. Uh, so I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time in New Zealand before the lockdown, the coronavirus lockdown, and sort of rub shoulders with the likes of Graham Henry, Steve Hansen, Wayne Smith, uh, plus some All Blacks players and former All Blacks players, etc. Uh, an interesting couple of years too when I went out there, a couple of, well, two weeks in each year with uh, Scott Robertson who's quite an energetic Medellese character. I've actually got, uh, at the moment, I've got a consultancy, I think that's the word for it, contract with England Rugby again. So this is, I think this is my fourth stab working with England Rugby between nine, 1985 and now. And largely it's operating as an advisor to the, uh, the coaching team with England under 20s. And uh, I'll do a bit of work now for World Rugby as well on a sort of ad hoc basis when they had an interesting um, meeting with the, some of the top coaches in the women's game worldwide about four or five weeks ago. And that was fascinating to, to listen, their, listen to their views on the game of rugby because they, they, I think they probably come at it from a more holistic angle than male coaches do. Well, most male coaches anyway. So it's quite interesting to, to hear the sort of things that they felt were important and things that they focused on were interested in. Very open-minded. A lot of toes in a lot of ponds, seemingly. Actually, it sounds, it sounds like I'm very busy, but I'm not. I, um, right. Like I said to you earlier on, I'm 76 in two weeks' time. So I'll leave plenty of time to get into mischief, cause trouble, and go out for walks and go down to the pub in the evening. So life's pretty good. It's good balance to life at the moment. Well, that's great to hear. And just going back to your role um, with the Premier League. Mm. So how does your role as a football coaching mentor differ from being a rugby coaching mentor? Well, obviously, I have far more technical... Well, I think I have far more technical knowledge about the rugby game than I have about the football game and probably far more game intelligence knowledge as well. But in essence, it doesn't change at all, to be honest, because it's... Uh, Coaching's coaching, whatever sport you're involved in. And there are lots of similarities between the various sports. And it's a lot of it is about the sort of, 
I hate using the phrase coaching philosophy, but the approach to coaching that you use and the methodology and how you actually translate what you think about coaching out and about the game out onto the pitch. So from that point of view, there's not a great deal of difference at all. And I've been, I actually, I've been very surprised to of how receptive some of the coaches have been. Football world gets painted in. I think sometimes there's been, I've sort of detected in the past that rugby sort of looked down a little bit on football from a behavioural and another area's point of view. But actually, I've not experienced that at all. Really enjoyed my time in the football world, been made to feel, feel very welcome at some of the most famous clubs in the world and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. You mentioned New Zealand Academy and obviously England's under-20s work you're doing. Now, I guess the academy system in New Zealand has come under scrutiny lately, uh, given the All Blacks' latest form. This is the first time mentioning of it on this podcast, but they obviously beat South Africa um, just over a week ago to relieve some of the pressure on Ian Foster. But what are your opinions on the fact that academy input and output is down significantly uh, based on 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, like, I maybe should ex- should have explained better what the International Rugby Academy is. It's this is for coach education, uh, which is run by Murray Mexted, the ex All Blacks number eight, and it's for coaches from all over the world, not for New Zealand coaches. Although some New Zealand oh, wow. coaches okay. do attend it, so in fact it has no impact whatsoever um, on the output from New Zealand rugby academies. It's sort of spreading. It's spreading the word, spreading the coaching word around the world. So I, I'm on one in yeah, two or three weeks' time. Dave Rennie's on it. Wayne Smith's on it. Eddie Jones is on it. So coaches come in from all over the world and coaching diff- and just talk about their views on different areas of coaching to coaches from as far apart as Fiji and the U- USA. So it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. It's really interesting. And it's, uh, and that's um, sort of that, opportunity to mix with some of the what I would call some of the great rugby brains of the past 10 15 20 years etc has been uh, been really helpful well in that case let's pick your great rugby brain in terms of England rugby uh, what's your view on how Eddie Jones has done particularly since the World Cup in 2019 well he's probably results wise he's probably not best pleased with what's happened especially in the six nations and I would imagine, I mean, as results and performance in my mind tend to go together, um, then he's probably not best pleased with the performance either. He obviously does. He'd be pleased that they won't beat Australia. I don't think it was a great test series, to be honest. Of the ones I watched, I preferred the Ireland, New Zealand and the world South Africa one, and possibly to Argentina, Scotland. So I think uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, there's some very, very talented players in the country. And, and I think one of the things they're obviously looking for is to... F- Find a way. I think they find a way to play when they've got the ball, when they're in possession of the ball. I think you know they're pretty well set up, as most English teams are set piece wise. Um, their kicking game. How do you, I mean? I, I refuse to describe a kicking game as good because it. Jesus, uh, they've got a kicking game. Uh, <laughs> defensively, yeah, they're, they're they're okay. I don't think they're at the level you want them to be. But I think certainly they'd be doing look, be looking to be a lot more confrontational, and I don't mean physically; I mean mentally and game intelligence-wise, confrontational with ball in hand to challenge. Certainly, if they are going to challenge next year in the Rugby World Cup, is it your impression, Brian, that when you look at Ireland and and what they've achieved in over the last year or so of, of Andy 
Farrell's tenure there. And, you know, you're pretty close to Farrell anyway and, and, or were and have been for many years. Is it your view that Ireland are playing with a, with a clarity, that they understand their game better than a number of other sides, possibly including England, that there's a real clear-mindedness about what they're setting out to achieve? That's not to say it's not going to go wrong. And as you would say and always have said, the idea is to think clearly when things are going wrong so you can put them right. So that's that's all about individual decision-making. But there, there just seems to be a game understanding in the Ireland side that sets them a little bit apart and it's certainly delivering them results at the moment anyway. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, clarity is one of the words that, that you've used and I think that's absolutely right. There's a real clarity about how they're playing and I think there's a real simplicity about how they play as well. It's not a complicated game. It might look complicated, but it's not. And I think it's very much based, I'm not taking nothing away from Andy Farrell now. I have massive admiration for Andy Farrell. And he's obviously his leadership qualities, I think, have, um, have come to the fore over the past 18 months or so with this team. Um, but I think a lot of the game is based on um, based around how Leinster play with Johnny Sexton leading it. If you watch Ireland play and watch Leinster play, they play in very similar sort of ways, uh, very similar sort of patterns and formations etc and it, it's uh, certainly there's a simplicity about it there's a clarity about it and I've always thought that's one of the key key things from, from a coaching point of view is to keep the game as simple and as clear as possible in the minds of the players especially in the modern game which is so quick you know but it allows you to play with with pace and obviously the, the more simple it is the more accurate you can be um, so, I mean, the top all-black sides of the past years between those two World Cups they won, there was nothing clever about the way they played. They were just unbelievably quick and unbelievably accurate. And I think Ireland have probably got into that, um, that way of playing now with a ball in hand. The danger, I suppose, for Ireland is, and, you know, this is highlighted with Leinster against, was it La Rochelle and was it the Stormers or the Bulls? I can't remember that beat them in the semi-final of URC is that if they get uh, if they get stuffed up front now given that the sort of there's a bit of Munster backbone added to some of their Leinster players then that's that'll be an interesting thing going forward but you could ask the question I'm not a fan of plan A and plan B's but you can ask the question have they got a plan B if the way they want to play doesn't work I mean that's a big question you ask of all teams isn't it if the way we want to play doesn't work what do we do now you know, in a game that's very often dominated by A, coaches first, B, sports scientists second with all the data analysis. The answer is we ain't got a plan B. Plan A doesn't work. We are stuffed. And speaking of, going back to your tenure with England, you obviously led an England side to a World Cup final back in 2007. And I think it's fair to say that side were on paper not necessarily world beaters. And you probably say the same about this England side on paper is that Right now, we're not world beaters with either the systems we have or the quality we have. So is that is that is what you've just said transferable here in that you'll have to have an England side that can't necessarily play the typical England way and has to have a plan B, plan C when things aren't going to plan, when the toys are out the pram? Yeah, I think a lot depends on how you approach the game. You know, if you approach the game from a game plan point of view, then you're in real danger of going up a blind alley if things don't go well. If you approach the game from a framework point of view, look, this is our objective. Let's say the objective is we play to win because we're an international team, but we want to play to win by scoring tries. Okay, so that's our dream. That's what we want to do. So then we draw down everything in our game. So what do we need to do in every area of the game to make sure that happens? If you play a game plan, you, you sort of, 
almost restricting and regimenting yourself to a certain way of playing. Within a framework, you're giving players the opportunity to actually select and change in the heat of the moment the way they're playing because it's most appropriate at the time. So I think there's a massive difference. And I'm not saying that England aren't doing this. I mean, I've no idea. I'm not in camp. I don't know what goes on. You know, it's very easy to sit outside and point the finger, but I've no idea what goes on inside the camp. So it may well be they're trying to work towards that. But certainly, you know, that, that game plan versus framework is something that I think is, is very, very important to the top end of world rugby and the sides who can adapt. We've got a flexibility of thought, wide range of skills, and uh, I've got this ability to lead change because they know what they're doing isn't going to be successful, to lead change in the middle of the game without waiting for half-time, without waiting for water boys and the guys who coaches to run on, <laughs> etc. And they can just do it themselves. You know, stand up and be men and do it themselves. Brian, can, can I just ask you, a thing that always struck me in your career, timing's everything, and you have to have a bit of loyalty from the ones who are employing you. And I'm thinking here, when you got to the World Cup final and then finished runner-up in the next Six Nations, you got shown the door. When Eddie Jones reaches the World Cup final and finishes fifth in the next Six Nations, he gets a long contract. When you took Ireland with an absolute callow team down to New Zealand, which was always going to be a tour of hell, um, it didn't work out well for you. When Woody takes the callow young team down to Australia, the tour from hell, he gets given the time, the backing, the loyalty... So in your incredibly complicated coaching life, how important is it that you get that right chemistry with the, your bosses and, and that they support you? Well, it's always nice to know you got support from the top. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't always apply, obviously. You just described it exceptionally well there, Brendan. Uh, well, it doesn't. You know, when, when I look back, I, I could be really bitter and twisted if I wanted to be, but I'm not. Because I understand, you know, like I said I'm earlier, I'm 76 in a couple of weeks. Now, I understand, I think, now how life works, you know, and not everything goes the way you want it to go. Uh, even with backing, not everything goes the way you want it to go. So you make the best of what you've got at any particular time. Um, but I do look back sometimes and think, wow, yeah, that, that, I mean, the England one especially was a really bizarre episode because I found out two weeks before it was announced via a national newspaper, I think, um, what was going to happen to me? So that's not the best way of, uh, of being of, of being involved in those sort of situations. So uh, I can't remember what the question was. If there was one, well, I know that talking. makes also makes coaching difficulty. Are you short term, mid term, long term? You know that that tour down to New Zealand with Ireland with all the kids who all got battered. That yeah. could have paid real dividends if you'd been allowed another two or three years in post. Yeah. I think it's a combination of all the ones, things you mentioned, short. You've got to have an eye on the bigger picture, uh, but you've got... The, the, well, there's two things. You've got to always have an eye on the bigger picture. You know, the bigger picture for most international teams now, irrespective of what the fans might grumble about about the Six Nations, is the World Cup. That's the bigger picture in world rugby now, the World Cup. But also, you've got to keep your eye on what happens in, in, the, in, the, in the present. So in the present might be, well, for England now, it's Autumn Internationals. Then after Christmas, it's Six Nations. But I think the bigger picture is still the World Cup. So it's a combination of short term. And there's never any really long term, is it? Because there's four years between each world. You can't call that a long time. So it's between short and medium term. Do, do, do you think, Brian, well, two things really. 
One's a jokey thing. If you called yourself a consigliere back in 2007, the RFU might not have treated you in the way they did because they would have expected a knock on the door in the middle of the night, wouldn't they? Um, the more serious point is, do you think that there's um, a natural time limit on uh, people coaching a particular team at the top level? I'm, th I'm thinking back to Hansen, who, who you've had a lot of dealings with. Mm. And there's, there's a sort of feeling amongst some people here that Steve stayed a little bit too long at the top of the All Blacks, that, that obviously the way their, their programme through this decade or the last decade was shaped, you had two years after the Great World Cup win in 2015. That was, a, that was a wonderful, wonderful performance by a wonderful team. They had the Lions, two years or so. It's a once-in-a-12-year opportunity. Yeah. And then there's the further carrot of retaining the title, and Steve would have been the first coach, I think, to retain, yeah. um, ever to retain a World Cup title. Do you, do you think that coaches sometimes, not necessarily just particularly him, but coaches can be prone to hanging on a little bit too long? I think the answer to that is yes. A lot depends on the environment you're in, I think. I mean, I don't know how long Alex Ferguson did at Manchester United, but that was probably a bit longer than Steve Hansen did with the Old Blacks. Mm. But he's probably the exception that doesn't prove the rule, to be yeah. honest, isn't he? You know, and some of the top guys like Guardiola and whatnot, they've been around for a while now, but... Uh, I think you feel yourself when you come in, to use the phrase, coming towards the end of your shelf life. You know, you feel that connection between yourself and the players is probably not as strong as it used to be, that the impact you're having maybe isn't what it used to be. Um, the game's moving on and maybe you can't move with it, you know, and you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and be honest about that. So I think there are a whole set of factors that would probably suggest Chris what you was what you were suggesting is that you, there is there is a time when you you just don't hang on because if you do then it's a to the detriment of the group that you're with and b ultimately it's going to be the detriment of yourself and how likely is it that you're going to tell yourself that or do you need someone who you genuinely trust and work closely with to sort of introduce that concept of pushing off while the going's good yeah it would be nice if you could find someone who you genuinely trust who might yeah. sit down and talk to you about that. Uh, that's not always the case, obviously. That's much much more preferable to the other one. I suppose, ultimately, you can decide for yourself. That's probably the best way to go and say, look, this is not working now. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I've had a bit of success, but I'll pass it over to someone else, see if he, can, he or she can take it any further. Let's look at your coaching philosophies now in particular Brian now uh, before this podcast obviously you discussed with me that you were working on a few philosophies that challenged the traditional ways of coaching and I just wondered if you wanted to sort of lay an outline for what those are for our listeners. Yeah so one of the things that sort of drives me especially in my later years now is the fact that I'm quite a restless character. I, I've got a lot I want to do before I depart this planet uh, in all sorts of different ways and still including coaching and this is not just purely for rugby coaching this is coaching generally so I'm restless I, I think I'll just describe some of what I think of my characteristics now you guys might disagree with this I'm restless I'm futuristic I'm always looking to the future I'm risk averse I'm quite have to take risks um, so I sort of live on the edge etc and if that phrase you know thinking outside the box well living outside the box is probably for me more appropriate than thinking outside it. Anybody can think outside it. Living, living outside <laughs> is a whole different ball game. So I, I suppose it's no surprise that from time to time I sort of look around because my life 
my, my working life so it's a, it revolves around coaching now is look around and think are there better ways of doing what we're doing and um, I sat down it was probably a couple of months ago now with the old blank sheet of paper exercise where you just sit down and say right if I was starting coaching again now what are the key things that I would look at that I think would be important and I came, came up with four headings so the four headings were and there's, there's actually alternative headings for these but I'll go with the original four because I thought they were really simple so you will have heard of the over coaching syndrome so I my first my first one was under coaching what does that mean or what does it look like on what impact might it have on the people in the organisation? The second one was inverted coaching. Same thing. What does that look like? What does it mean? What does it look like? Etc. The third was disruptive coaching. And the last one was desperation coaching. So those are all, all things, I think, that I've sort of had a stab at with some success in my coaching life. And the reason I did this was because I do concern, I may have alluded to this earlier on, I do get concerned now with the influence that the sports scientists have on the game. You know, that we, we some of us are, are in danger of devising a way to play that's based on stats and data. And, and rugby is too dynamic, fluid and intelligent game to be nailed down to play according to what the stats suggest. There's so many things that you cannot predict. It's unpredictable. It's uncertain. One of the beauties about it are those two descriptions and you need to have an adaptability and a flexibility that I mentioned before to be able to deal with things like that. So I think the, the traditional way of coaching, and I still see it, I still see it in the football clubs as well as the rugby clubs that I visit. I, I don't know. They don't excite me at all. Brian, can you so, think of an example in your career of under-coaching? And was it a good experience or a necessary experience or a bad experience? Because I, I, like, like many, I think there's too much coaching goes on sometimes. But what... How do you pitch undercoaching? Well, undercoaching, by and large, is developing a framework and promoting collaborative learning, learning between players and coaches. Uh, so there's a, there's a con, con, continual engagement, verbal engagement, thinking engagement between coaches and players. You know, and so that encourages ultimately freedom and flexibility. I suppose the classic for me would be the 2007 World Cup when the misinterpretation of some of, of possibly me and some of the players in terms of what we're trying to achieve because of the way that I operated, which is completely different to previous regimes in terms of, you know, I wanted a player-led environment. One of you suggested earlier on that maybe it wasn't the greatest team that England ever had, but there's still some pretty smart characters in it there. And certainly I didn't feel, and again, going back to what I've just said about the development at that time, We've been in the professional game, what, 10 years? And so I think the, the analysts were beginning to have, and the st statistics and data I mean, began to have more and more impact. So that went on, where I've always been one for a natural and gut feel about games, that I, I just felt, well, I didn't feel at all, I spotted early on that uh, maybe the way that I wanted, that I, the image that I had of how we wanted to play the game, actually, A, didn't fit with the one that the players had and they wanted to be more directed as opposed to what's the opposite to directed encouraged well you well you could say brian couldn't you they're, they're, they're i mean look, looking back and you know i mean i covered that world cup and, and i spent a lot of time with you at, at that time and 
and I was speaking to players and they, they did broadly fall into a couple of categories. There were people who were prepared or who bought into the notion that you went out there and played what you saw. Yeah. And there was another bunch who completely bought into the notion and preferred to play what they were told. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I'm not sure that that's easily bridgeable, is it? It's very difficult to bridge it, certainly. But I mean, the evidence was, I suppose, ultimately, that they managed to do it. Because mm. uh, to beat Australia in the quarterfinal against all the odds and then to beat France, who just beat New Zealand, you know, on their home territory, was, uh, was, was a pretty good result. But it, it was, it was a really interesting time. And uh, uh, conversely, if you look at the sort of size of coached at Bath in the 1990s, and I very quickly learned at Bath that um, here was a group of players who wanted, wanted a say in how the game was played. Um, they had some very strong characters in there, some very knowledgeable characters in there. And it would have been absolutely foolish, I think, of me to say, well, this is how we're going to play. So what that changed in my coaching was instead of instead of approaching the game in a lot of detail was actually look at concepts and principles of play present them to the players and say what do you think about these guys and let's have a look and see how you interpret it when you get out onto the field in practice you know because ultimately the coach does not play the game he doesn't get the same emotional connection with the game that the players do he's not there in the heat of the battle he's not there in the heat of the practice he's an observer and whilst he's an observer, if he's an astute observer, he can actually make comments that will assist and uh, will help players get better. But actually, they're best placed to know at any given time what is likely to work, what is likely to be successful, and what isn't. So, so would it would it surprise as an illustration of what you've just been saying, Brian? I, I can remember. I mean, I mean, a long time after you had coached Bath, but I can remember Ollie Barkley, with whom you would have had a lot to do down the years, I guess. There was always a discussion at Bath about whether they should be playing him at 10 or 12. A new coach who, I think, to save embarrassment, will remain nameless, but it won't take too many people to try and work this out. A new coach came into Bath, picked Ollie Barkley at 10 for the first match of the Premiership season. I said to him, after the game, I said, that's quite a, that's quite a bold call, it's quite an exciting call because Ollie can do some different things, etc." He says, he can do different things as long as they work. The moment they don't work, he'll do as he's told. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't know exactly, yeah, the Australian coach that you're referring to. <laughs> I would imagine without mentioning any names. So, I mean, that's, yeah, so that's just a ridiculous comment, really, isn't it? Because he's admitting that here we have a player with a wide range of abilities and talents, but actually, if he, if he doesn't do, if he doesn't do them right every time, every game, then we're going to take all that away from him. And, you know, there is far more, even now, as I, I watch, certainly far more restrictive, regimented coaching goes on than there is players being given the freedom. And when I talk about freedom, I'll get this right. So I always talk about freedom with, and, and the payback from the players is to show responsibility and discipline. So you give the freedom to the players to play the game. So they make the choices out on the field as the game is unfolding around them. And, uh, but they have to give back that responsibility and discipline. You know, they've got to, A, respect the basics of the game. So freedom's not freedom to go crazy. Respect the basics of the game. Respect the opposition they're playing against. And respect the game of rugby itself, because there are certain things, such as go forward, support, continuity, pressure. The old chestnuts there. 
that are there in every game. If you want to win games, you've got to get those right to some extent. So the players have got to respect all that and play their part in helping to develop that freedom. And how important is is the senior is the development of a senior player group? Brian, I, I mean, there's a, a famous old picture of, of the Springboks in the 1930s, and those are the days before, before coaching at all. Yeah. And there, were, there were five key figures in yeah. what was a very great side, yeah. and they, it was a think tank. They, yeah. they behaved like a, a think tank. They, yeah. they, they, they set the, the parameters for the side, and they, they set the framework, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, did, were, were you keen to develop senior player groups during your time in your various coaching environments? Absolutely. I think more, I, I used to call them influencer groups. Okay. Players, players who could influence. and So they didn't necessarily have to be senior players, but players who, in one way or another, either by the way that they talked about the game, the way that they played, could influence other players around them. And I think that's really important. And again, it's, you know, it all goes back to this, when they get out on the field, when... I think it was Guardiola who four or five years ago was quoted as saying, once the players cross that white line, he said, they're in control of what happens next. Mm. You know, and that's it. But in fact, you were thinking the modern game, and again, you know, going back to all this pre-planned stuff, this game plan, premeditated, this is how we're going to play. You think that's the last thing that happens. Once you cross that white line, you do what you're bloody told. You ain't got any freedom at all. This is how we're going to play the game. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to play any rugby in your own half. You're going to kick the ball, etc. Because what's the famous phrase that we heard two or three years ago? The ball is like what? I can't remember. Is it George Ford that said it? Oh, he, he said something like the ball's a ticking time bomb and, and you don't, and you don't mean, want it. I can't believe that actually... Player that good, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 that wasn't his phrase. That was somebody else's phrase that he repeated. But, I mean, once a game gets to ridiculous situations like that, then we might as well go home and watch something else. Um, yeah. The one thing about rugby is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you know this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So, on a full size pitch, let's just assume in 10 metre in goal areas. So, ball still in play there, 8,400 square metres. Okay. At any one time in the game, there's 31 of those occupied, 50, 30 players and a referee. So, there's 8,369 square metres empty. So, when everybody says to me there's no space in the modern game, I sort of quote that and then close the door and go home. <laughs> because it's just, it's, it's just ridiculous. And I know because players are bigger and quicker that that space changes and closes down what not more quickly. But the lazy coaches ignore that and they'll just follow, right, well, we can't play here. We can't play from our own 22, which is for me is the obvious place to play from because it's when the defence is its least focused and concentrated. You know, the whole thing is crazy. So we, sometimes, like the inverted coaching thing I talked about, just turn the game on its head. You know, what the opposition not expect us to do this here. They don't expect us to do this there. So that's the first thing we're going to do. And let's have some real challenge and intelligence about it, rather than just following systems and structures. We've got to play like this. Well, we're not, you know, if we win the ball from a scrum, first thing we do is what? We'll score a try. We don't kick it away. We don't set up a phase. We don't go here. We don't go one, we're going here. Two, we're going there. Three, we're going here. Then we can start playing. It's too late then. Can't we just scrum for a penalty instead? Sorry? Can't we just scrum for a penalty instead? Chris, don't get me going on that. (laughs) I was in an environment not long ago, and I'm not going to mention what it was, where I heard a young hooker say to the coach, are we not scrumming for penalties then? And this guy was only 18 years old. 
And, you know, that things like that just frighten me to death amongst young players. So... So if you're a player these days, Brian, in the England squad, uh, with a with a brain uh, and some rugby now, so you get the impression uh, that you won't your comments won't be entirely welcome. And Danny Cipriani the other day um, came out with that. It was when the debate about the public schools thing was kicking off from something Eddie said, and, and Sips was saying like, you know, forget that. One of the problems is even in you know within the England environment, you're not encouraged to have your own mind and your own thoughts and your own view on the game. It's very, very difficult. And you get ostracised if you start, or you're seen as difficult if you start making a few points of what we could have done. So are you confident that there are big enough personalities still in English rugby to make sure that the players' intelligence and rugby nows can get through in, in that environment? Well, I hope so. It's very difficult to comment generally, Brendan, on that, because like I said right at the very start of the podcast, that... You need to be inside those environments. Yeah. You exactly know what's going on. I mean, people people fire off all sorts of stuff in in the media and on social media and whatnot these days, don't they? For for a variety of reasons, some to get attention, some to throw a hand grenade in and then walk away, some because they genuinely believe it. But but I, it does concern me. I think I mentioned it two or three times already today. It does concern me about this the sort of limiting factor that playing according to system structures, data statistics puts puts on a game that has on the big area that I just highlighted has a massive opportunity to be dynamic, intelligent and punishing. And I don't mean punishing physically, I mean punishing mentally, you know, where we really take the opposition to places they really don't want to be. Uh, and that could be anywhere on the field at any time. Um, but in a situation where they think, God, we don't want them to be doing this here. Mm. Um, you know, and so if I was starting my coaching life again, I think those would be three of the words that I really focus on. Produce a game that's dynamic, it's intelligent and it's punishing. Um, the coaches, I think, need to have a mindset or think about having a mindset. I'm not telling anybody how to coach. That's entirely up to them. An ABC mindset, one of ambition, one of belief and one of courage. You know, the toughest one of those is courage to actually, you can have the ambition, you can have the belief, and that comes through good preparation, now you want to play. But to actually translate that, that last step, when you cross that white line, as Guardiola says, have the courage to take control of what's going on and put it into operation, is a big, big step, I think, for lots of players in the environments they find themselves in. Do you see a parallel with all this in, in what's happening with England cricket at the moment, Brian? So, so Brendan McCullum's come in. Hmm. The, the media being the media has, 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 has come, up, come up with a tag, so it's basball. Suddenly England are, are, are amazingly attacking and blah, 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 and they chase down huge totals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, and it's celebrated from all points of the, of the compass here until they come unstuck against South Africa, when suddenly they're not playing with, uh, with a proper respect for the situation in which they find themselves, all that stuff. And McCullum said last week, he said, look, and he doesn't like the, the whole basketball thing anyway. Yeah. But he said, look, this, this is not like um, a theory of... Hello? He's gone. Has died. Shame. I mean, I was literally just about to ask that question, so... <laughs> I can I can take I can take over. Right. What we'll do while we're waiting for Chris is we'll do the 15 questions and then Chris can ask questions after that. So 15 questions. See as much or as little as you like. Right. Nickname. Well, I've got three. Number one was Coco, Jerry Guscott, and my bath days. Because if you look at me, well, if you looked at me 
but then I, he, he thought a, a little bit like Coco the Clown. Not a reflection on my coaching, he said. The other one, Ernie, when I went on the tour from hell that somebody mentioned earlier on, it's the first time we'd had our initials and our kit. And instead of BA, it was EA. And somebody said, what does that stand for? I think Matt Dawson said it's Ernie. So I then became Ernie Ashton. Nice. And then the final one was an Austin Neely one, call me Yoda. <laughs> and is Yoda self-explanatory? It probably is, if you look at me. I've probably need bigger ears. Like that. And, uh, slightly better looking than Yoda. Probably same age at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yoda puts a different meaning on inverted coaching, doesn't it? You just speak backwards. Exactly. Yeah, it's a quite natural thing for me, yeah. It's <laughs> rugby memory. Uh, rugby memory, coaching King School Bruton. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, team, Brendan, you'll know this. I think you sort of did an interview. I remember covering you, yeah, at the time. Yeah, you were very good. Played a whole season without kicking the ball. That's it. That's it. You challenged them to do it. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I did. it was, that was a collaborative thing as well. They want so, you to do it. Very yeah, good. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Uh, when I was teaching at Stonyhurst College, um, I played for the Anti-Assassins, which used to be a good old northern sort of barbarians version, not the same level. And they used to play schools. So I played against the school I was coaching and missed the tattle that led to the college winning the game. <laughs> and I think I've been hammering on about defence previously to the team. <laughs> At least you're yeah. open about it. Yeah, never never play against the guys that you coach at the time. No. Pre, pre-game tune. Oh, easy one. Brown sugar, rolling stones. Nice. Post-game meal. Fish, steak, pudding and chips at Henry, Henry Street, Lytham. Did you say fish and steak? Fish, steak, pudding and chips. Oh, steak pudding. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, nice. by the time in, the, in those days... Turf and turf. Yeah. 60s, early 70s. You know, by the time it got to 7 o'clock in the evening, probably down 10 pints. <laughs> so you needed something to sort of re, recalibrate yourself, as it were. So that was a pretty good way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. Best player you've played against? Oh, Steve Smith, scrum half, England Grand Slam, 1980s, probably before, well, obviously before your time. But he was a guy that very often we sort of cancelled one another out at club level. But when we played at representative level against one another, he always had that edge over me. It was a mental edge more than anything. Well, it became one over the years. Yeah. But, uh, very talented player. All-round games player, as a lot of people were in those days. Good cricketer. Yeah, you never get the chance to see that now, do you? Mm-hmm. Because uh, pigeonhole down the rugby route at the age of nine, and that's it. Never go anywhere else. Well, I guess his namesake is uh, in the modern day is quite a good, good cricketer as well, isn't he? Yeah, not bad, yeah. <laughs> Best player you've played with? Well, I've got three here. They're all Lancastrians, which surprise you, but I think they're pretty good guys. Frank Cotton, Bill Beaumont and Tony Neary. All Lancastrians, all ex-English captains, all British Lions players, all outstanding rugby players in their own right. Yeah. Interested by this one. Favourite player right now? Hardy Severe. Easy. Rugby Idol? I've got two. Pierre Villepro and Wayne Smith. Nice. Favourite stadium? Millennium Cardiff with a roof on. Yeah, we've had that one a lot. Favourite gym exercise? Having a shower afterwards. <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Well, teaching. I was a teacher. Loved teaching. Yeah. Loved being involved with uh, with the up-and-coming youngsters who were going to shape the world. Just kept me young and happy and excited. Yeah. Superstitions? An hour before the game, 
was the time for me and Bill Bill to have our last cigarette before kickoff. <laughs> <laughs> we both stopped smoking years ago, but that was one of our pre-match superstitions. Nice. <laughs> All about health and That's conditioning, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. All about what? Sorry. All about health and conditioning, Brian. Yeah, we used to train hard. <laughs> We'd actually earned it. <laughs> Rugby law, you would change. Oh, blimey. I, I'm just the replacement one. So, Get rid replacements of them. for injury only, independent doctor. I'll probably knock it down to five replacements maximum. I just, this ludicrous, well, we'll know all this, but I mean, a prop forward can play what? Well, anything just above half a game or two thirds of a game, let's say. Ball in play, most international games, about 35, 36 minutes. So two thirds of that is what? Go on, mathematician amongst well, us. About 23 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. 23 like minutes. yeah, ball actually in play though, because the clock doesn't stop when the scrum's being reset. Mm. You kick it off the pitch of the line out, it's clock still ticking. You could probably knock another five minutes off of that. So ball in play, we're now down to what, Brendan? 18. About 18, 17, 18. Yeah, so this guy trains all week and plays 18 minutes, gets paid £250,000 a year, and nobody questions it. Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts, isn't it? Good point, well made. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Uh, Travelling the world and meeting great people. Yeah, excellent. Right, great stuff, Brian. Thank you for doing that. Let's get back to Chris. It's good to have you back with us after your connection died mid-question. Well, everyone, everyone froze. That, that's not the first time people have frozen during one of my sentences, mind you. Um, but you, but you, you do know you're on a bad wicket, so to speak, when the screen gives up and you through boredom as well. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I'm back. Yeah, well, Chris, back to your question then. Let's get back to the concept of the fearlessness that you were alluding to with England cricket. Yeah, it, 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 it was a point that, um, I mean, I've spoken to you many times in the past, Brian, about the, the the language of rugby, some of which you didn't like. You never liked the the word drills always made you sound like a sergeant major or uh, you didn't like the word breakdown because that signified that everything had gone wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Brendan McCullum's come in and England have played a, particular, a particularly eye-catching form of cricket this year. It's gone really well, three tests against New Zealand, one against India, exciting matches, great run chases, all the rest of it. Really dynamic form of cricket and you could call a flexible form of cricket as well. But it doesn't work against South Africa. And suddenly it's all wrong. And suddenly they're not using their brains. They're not playing the, the, the situation, et cetera, et cetera. And McCullum said, this is not something that we've drawn up on a blackboard. This is all the product of the kind of conversation and discussions I'm trying to generate amongst the players in the dressing room. So we've achieved this sort of critical mass that comes, that, that comes to a point where we have a common approach to a dynamic way of playing the game that we all want to buy into. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And very logical too. You know, anything other than that is not logical to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think what he's, what, what, he's, what he's said there without actually saying it is that people talk a lot about developing a culture, don't they? And very often when they talk about the culture, they talk about the way that players behave off the field. Uh, that's the culture. For me, there's, there's no distinction between culture and the way you play. The two are integrated. You behave off the field as, as you do on the field. So the whole thing, as Brendan McCullum has, has just suggested, this is us. You know, if you see England cricket, if they're on a night out, then they're on a night out. There's some freedom, there's some flexibility. 
etc. And the same on the field. We're having a good time. We're enjoying our life. We're enjoying the game on the field. But again, I'll just go back to um, and maybe this is possibly where some of the players haven't quite got their heads around it yet. Because England certainly got the players to play that way. It's going back to something I mentioned before about respecting the, respecting the basics of the game, respecting the opposition you're playing against, and actually respecting the game of cricket itself. You know, there are times in a test match where you can't do the sort of things you'd love to do. And you've got to understand that and just knuckle down for maybe an hour, etc., and then find your way back in again. So, massive believer in what they're doing. I think they've got the players to, some of the players anyway, not all of them, some of the players to, to action it. But they've got to, again, they've got to understand that there are times maybe when you've just got to draw yourself back in a little. So on, on, so on that, so you said something interesting there about having the players to do it. I remember spending quite a lot of time with Warren Gatland, who succeeded you as Ireland coach. And um, Warren, Warren said that you'd invited him to come and watch some of your sessions and, and he found them all very enlightening and thought-provoking and what have you. But when he got the Ireland job, he said <laughs> one of the things that Brian appeared to have done was to assume that the players that he had at his disposal with Ireland were capable of doing the things he was asking them to do. He said, and some of that was running and catching and passing a ball. He said, half of them couldn't do it. He said, so I stripped it right back to the three or four things that they could do effectively well, that particular Ireland side, that they could do well and just concentrated on that. Do you think, is, is there any merit in that? Do you think that your expectations of players at any point in your career were a little bit beyond what they were naturally able to deliver? Yeah, I, th- I, think, there's, I think there's a lot of truth in that, absolutely. And I think that's highlighted with what Warren said. You know, do you remember, I come from that bath environment that, won everything inside, etc., and had some incredibly talented rugby players. And you could you could argue that at that time that Bath maybe were a better side than Ireland. You could argue. Um, you know, I'm not saying they were, but you could argue that. And but certainly in, in terms of actual the, the, the rugby playing skills, it's a very skillful side. So my expectation will be, you know, if you move up to an international level, that this is just an enhancement, continuation of what I've been doing, but actually at a high level. And, uh, you know, I know I hold my hand up. It's much my fault as it was. Well, it wasn't their fault. It's it my fault that I didn't recognise that at the time and didn't... Uh, and I, I actually don't think by that stage in my life, I was 50-odd, that I would have changed anyway. I'd sort of gone down the pathway. I'd been influenced by Pierre Vilbra of uh, having this player-centred environment, putting on sessions that full of problem-solving decision-making, I don't think I would have changed by that. No. I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the will to strip back to, as Warren did, to the basics and just build the game back up from there. Yeah, I haven't got that patience. Here's an interesting <laughs> one, Brian. I've always thought that you, with your and you're sitting there in your Roma shirt this morning, uh, <laughs> and your playing experience in Italy, I've always thought you were the man to coach Italy. Uh, were you ever approached... Did you turn it down? And if you had taken it, hearing what you're saying today, how would you have approached it? Do you because you're not the person to strip them down to the basics, but Italy at that stage and even now are lacking in certain skills. Um, so so get your teeth into that one. Yeah, which one? Yes, about well, Italy. Would, would you have ever did you were you ever offered the job? I had an interview, well, it wasn't an interview at all. That's ridiculous. It had played Wales. Uh and who was the president at the time? He was a very dominating figure. Dondi? 
Yeah, that's right. Donned it. Who I'd met actually when I was in Italy in complete different capacity. And I went along and I've no idea who was the coach at the time with Italy then. It wasn't John, Nick Mallet, I think it was. But I, I went, I was going to the game anyway. And I told someone, a friend of mine who, an Italian who was actually on the committee, and he fixed up a meeting in the hotel in Cardiff where the Italians were staying on the Saturday morning of the game with Dondi. And we just talked about about Italian rugby. I think that was the closest I ever got. Mm. I'm not sure that they were. He, what I said, he didn't want to hear anyway. Um, <laughs> well, it sort of it would have relinquished the, some of the control that he wanted over the what was going on. So yeah. there's no chance of that ever happening. In terms, I think one of the things about coaching aside. And again, maybe this is something that I didn't do when I went to Ireland, is actually getting to know the the nature of the people. It's yeah. Probably just as important, if not more important, to find out how good they are at rugby. So to, to understand the, the Italian temperament. Um, they you would have had a head start there, though, because you did play there for two or three yeah, years. Yeah, they don't live life like we do. <laughs> they don't play games like we do. And I think, you, you know, it's... Uh, You've got to take that into consideration. I was reading something the other day that Wayne Smith had written about being in Japan and he got the shock of his life when he went out there, you know, and had to, because the Japanese culture was not quite the same level as the All Blacks one. So had to make some adjustments. And I think uh, I think that, that, that would have been key for me to approach it, to, to getting to know the players. And again, going back to something that Chris asked, or I mentioned in response to one of his questions, finding out who the influential players were in that group. Mm. And sitting down and talking to them and so, said, look, we've got a clean sheet of paper here. How do you want to approach this? You know, I need some help here. I'm a foreigner coming into the country. I know a bit about Italian rugby. You guys are influential in the group. You've been here a while. You know, where do we need to go? What do we need to do to actually get back on the road and, and start having a little bit of success? Going back to what we were talking about with England cricket, one question that I wanted to touch upon with you anyway was mindset. And we've alluded to it earlier, but obviously the England cricket discourse has been mindset has been the biggest change. And they play with this fearlessness. You know, they're taking the field and they're not really scared of anything. Brian, how do you cultivate something like that in a team that had lost one of its last, sorry, had one, sorry, one of its last 17 tests? How do you create that fearlessness? Is it a team ethos? Is it sports psychology? How would you go about that? And how do you think that Brendan McCullum has, if he has actually managed to do that, managed well, it? Yeah. I think the interesting thing is the word you use, mindset. It's a thing that's talked about a lot, the mental side of the game, but it's addressed very little, especially in our game. I think the, mind, the mindset is the glue that holds everything else together. You know, I've seen players at all levels of the game who are fantastically skillful, who are in top, tip-top physical condition, um, who can follow a game plan, which is, that's not a recommendation, by the way. I'm, I'm just making an observation. They can follow a game plan, but when things don't go to plan, they suddenly, they don't know where to go. They can't make decisions. They sort of, mentally, they fall apart. So I think the mindset side of things is really important. And I've always had a saying about mindset influences belief. Belief drives performance. Performance determines the outcome. So there's a direct link between mindset and outcome. But going back to the, uh, the fearlessness, I think creating the safety of fearlessness in the environment is really important. Don't be afraid to try something. If you make a mistake, A, you're not going to get dropped first time you do it, and B, you're not going to get a bollock in. You know, we're going to sit down and ask the question, why did you do what you did? Would you do it again? 
And if you would do it again, what do you need to do to do it better? And I think once you start having conversations like that with players uh, and with other coaches and with support staff and everything, then it just create that actually we're not afraid to do things that may be under a previous regime. They said, look, we're not, don't do this. Don't do that. I mean, there's a lot of negative coaching goes on around the world where people are told, look, don't do this in this part of the field. Don't do that. Don't. And you think, why not? How do you know what the outcome's going to be unless you try it? Just, it's like life, isn't it? You know, there's so much bloody negativity goes on in life. Kids have got massive freedom, you know, from the age of what, not when they're born, and I don't know what age we start taking it away, but A, probably when they go to school, B, if we're fairly strict as parents, C, if they get involved in sport and go to a club, you know, they suddenly become more and more regimented, more and more restricted on what they can do. Um, so I think, you know, this creating that umbrella of the safety of fearlessness is one of the great things that, uh, that conciliary, not coaches, because coaches won't do that, conciliary can do. Do you think, Brian, that um, uh, we, we've had so many long discussions about rugby down the years and, and, and you, I've always found your ideas, um, you know, exciting and challenging and new and full of appeal. Rugby's going, seems to be going through a stage at the moment in comparison with some other sports, but partly through problems of its own making, where the appeal of the game is, and the joy of the game is, it's not, it's not disappearing, but there is a perception out there that it's struggling to maintain those things about itself. Do you, do you fear in any way for the game's future in the, in the, in the short term or more importantly in the long term? I think in the longer term, yeah, I'd be really interested. Rugby needs to have a long, hard look at itself. I mean, there's obviously there's health and safety issues and the concussion, etc. How the hell do you get around that with you know in a game that's full on physical contact game? It's it's a very difficult one to very difficult problem to solve. You can tinker with the the laws of the game, but you know it's I think evidence what evidence suggests that it actually it might not be down to what happens in a game. It might be what happens over a period of years in preparation and things like that. So it's a very difficult one to pin down there. But I think certainly, I mean, we need, the game needs, well, it's the funny one, this, Chris, because the game needs, the game that appeals to me is a really dynamic, intelligent game that I mentioned, I've mentioned those two words before, you know, where you see lots of movement of ball, lots of movement of players, uh, lots of great decision made by players, lots of risk taken by players, etc. But actually, you know, when I go around, I don't go all that often, but I do go and watch Premiership rugby. And I'm not all that sure that fans want that. They just want the team to win. You know, it doesn't really matter how they win, which is it's a bit of an anomaly, really, isn't it? So if, if we're looking at it to develop a game in one way, you know, and I would imagine that a lot of players who would love to play in the sort of game that you outlined, um, but actually it might be, I'm, I'm, I've no evidence of this at all, but it's, this is just hearsay evidence. And actually being in crowd <laughs> actually is, is well, actually we don't care how they play as long as they win. I'm sure you're right. I mean, the 15,000 at Gloucester every Saturday will be happy with a one-point win every Saturday. The hundreds of thousands watching TV, the neutral, want to see a spectacle, don't they? They want to see the rugby that you, you've outlined. Can I... All right, so I've been answering questions for, what, 45 minutes. Can I ask one then? So have you any inclination whatsoever? So if you go to watch Harlequins now, for example, 
is the expectation of the crowd at Harlequins that they're going to watch a singing, all dancing, all singing, all dancing game. And if they don't, they're disappointed. Whereas, as you've just pointed out, Brendan, and I'm not going to mention the club because I've got friends down there and I don't want them coming back. What the bloody hell did you say about my club? That if you go on somewhere else where the sort of the history suggests they play a more traditional sort of form of the game, and the fans are quite happy with that. If they went all singing, all dancing and lost, the fans would go berserk. Well, you nailed it on the head. I mean, I mean, Quinns in many ways are a particular case in that they've always had the ethos of playing a slightly different attacking game. But it has, and it's you know, all credit to them, it's become part of the package with Quinns. They want to play winning, attacking rugby, you know, uh, attractive rugby. And they sort of go hand in hand now. And I'm not sure Quinns supporters... I don't know, who are we to speak to Quinn supporters, but would they be happy with a lesser brand of rugby but still winning? I'm not sure. It's a different audience, isn't it? Yeah. Southwest London, Richmond to Gloucester. I, I, I think what you, I mean, what you say is obviously true, Brian. People who, are, who associate themselves with a club deeply enough to want to spend pretty good money every year going to watch them in all winds and weathers, they, they want to see victory. For, for, for the masses, so to speak, what do you want to see from it? I mean, I, I take great pleasure, actually, in the light and shade still of rugby, that there's more than one way of skinning a cat in, 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 in rugby union. Um, so when I see Sale play that big, sort of very aggressive, almost bludgeoning form of rugby, or Exeter to a degree, let's, let, let's say those, those, those two sides are uh, among the less pretty teams. And it's a terrible word, and you'll disagree with it straight away. But you know what I mean. They're, they play a, a less beautiful brand of rugby, let's say, than a Quinns or, or actually a, a Gloucester at the moment, who can who really do know how to fling the ball around. Or Northampton, I mean, who were extraordinary um, last season. I thought Chris Boyd did an, an, an amazing job there. With a, oh, yeah, yeah. with a lightweight pack, yeah. he, he recognised what he didn't have available to him, so he constructed, with, with the help of some really bright young players, fast-tracked into the first team, a really exciting brand of rugby. Now, I'm, I love to see that kind of rugby against a bludgeoning kind of rugby, because that's the real light and shade. My concern about a lot of rugby that we watch at the moment is that, apart from the technical minutiae of it, to the lay observer, everyone's doing, or an awful lot of teams are doing the same kind of thing. Yeah, I, just a couple of things that sprung to mind when you were talking there. Everyone's got the right to coach in his own way. There's no doubt about that, you know. And if some teams want to play in the way that you suggested, I can't remember the words used, bludgeoning as well, I think. Um, more traditional sort of way, more contact-orientated as opposed to space-orientated, etc. Who, who am I to say, don't do that? I, just because I don't like watching that doesn't mean to say it can't be effective. And I think be, being effective is, is the real word. That being effect, effective is the real word that I, I would consider. And it, it just seems to me, having played the game at a high level, I've been coached at world level for years and years and years, that the more dynamism you can put into your game, the more you can use those 8,400 square metres of space, the more difficult you are to, be, to play against, the more challenging your game's going to be. And the sort of bludgeoning, contact-orientated sort of game doesn't lend itself to what I've just said. Mm. So for me, it's common sense that you know the wider range of the, the wider range of ambition with skills and mindset to back that up, that you've got unconditioning to back that up, 
um, is going to be a more more effective winning way of playing rugby than the uh, the narrow view of it. Let, let me ask you this: it let, let let's let's say this the game the, the the imaginary game I'm talking about is a competitive game, so it's not all one way, and it's ha- and it has twelve tries in it, seven tries to five, let's say that will automatically be presented in a hell of a lot of corners of the rugby media and in the rugby, um, uh, amongst rugby people generally, as an instant classic. Extraordinary. Amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Do you think 12 tries in a competitive game is automatically a classic? Or do you think that you can have a, um, a pretty damn good game with four tries in it where people have had to sweat blood and tears to cross the opposition line? Just, just being slightly ridiculous for the moment, but I think it makes a point. You can have 12 tries and all 12 could be from driving malls. <laughs> Both teams. Yeah. But the, but the, the other thing too, Chris, is the fact that, you know, if you have 12 tries, somebody somewhere will say, well, what about the bloody defence? <laughs> Probably me. <laughs> well, well, it's the negative way of looking at things, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So, it is. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose in an ideal world, you want what you suggested, I think, 10, 15 minutes ago, or alluded to, that you want a game that's got everything in it. You know, that challenges all the players in different ways and that allows each player to make a contribution depending on the skills and physicality, mm. um, exciting running or whatever um, that they've got. And, and, and it, surely it's not beyond the wit of man to, to develop games like that. It's yeah. dead easy to stop rugby being played like that by restricting them within systems and structures, etc. And surely can we not go the other way and give them that freedom of responsibility and discipline uh, with an ABC mindset, load the gun and fire it. Ready, fire, aim, not ready, aim, fire. We want something to do, but we've got an idea, boof, let's do it. We'll pick up the pieces afterwards instead of ready, aim, fire. I know people of my age, my friends who I was at school with who lived not far from me, who were still in the bloody aiming part of their life and the same age as me, 76. They've never got past aiming, never fired anything. <laughs> a lot of aiming, though. So, one of your great rugby idols um, um, is is Pierre Villepreux. Are you excited by what France are offering at the moment, or their potential? Absolutely. I think they've got a mixture of Galtier and Villepreux in the way they play the game. Villepreux and the problem-solving decision-maker, the bigger picture, and Galtier and the understanding that you know to win an international game of rugby, you've got to establish some sort of ascendancy up front, and uh, he's developed. A- team, I think in his own image, I remember him as a player, outstanding captain and scrum half, Galtier, um, where he had liked to have teams with big forwards who could play rugby as well. So they never shirked from the physical responsibility of what they had to do, but Jesus given the opportunity they could play some rugby as well. And the backs were electrifying on the back of that. Now, we have run out of time, Brian, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing some of your ideas. I wish you all the best with the many projects you've got. Thank you. Great to have you on and good fun as always, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers, great. Brian. Great to hear you in such a great form. Were you a better scrum half than Dupont or not quite as good? I can't remember, Brian. It's Dupont. Who's he? Get yourself a copy of the rugby paper in stores on Sundays or have it delivered to you through our digital subscription. We will see you next week for episode 29.